Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 229, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, do school districts need more time to spend their COVID funds? Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, why a robust civics education is critical and what we can do to make sure we're providing just that for our students. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, chief academic officer, as well as co-host of the Class Dismissed podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? I am doing well. How are you? I I can't complain at all. I mean, is everything going good in in your world of uh, being a chief academic officer, or is is the plate full? The plate is full, (laughs) (laughs) but I still have zero complaints. I hear you. That's all good, then. Glad to hear it. Now, let's go ahead, and uh, we're going to jump into today's main topic, which has to do with funding, I was reading it, and I don't know that you're going to necessarily agree with it or not, but I'll put out the information first, and I'll let you chime in. 48% of district leaders who responded to a July survey said that the federal COVID relief money, which is due uh, in December of 2024, that's when it actually has to be spent, um, it's actually an obstacle, and they are asking for more time. Now, I will say that was 48%. That means 52% says, eh, we can spend it fast enough according right. to the survey. So which side do you kind of fall there? We're going to fall on the side that we have been, um, I think, uh, pretty frugal with our time. Um, I think initially just hearing you say that, the first thing that comes to my mind about that 48%, there may be some school districts who were in better situations than the 52%. Mm-hmm. For us, we had great infrastructure issues. We did not have a one-to-one situation or even you know, 50-50 type situation as in regard to issuing Chromebooks to our students. We truly needed those funds and quickly um, met as a district team to determine projects that um, were eligible under those ESSER funds and things that we were critical that we needed within our district. So perhaps they just needed more time to get creative. I mean, you've been doing this for a while. Um, did you feel like the money, which was significant, did you? was it like a noticeable difference? How did it feel? Um, it's definitely a bump in funding. It's it's a grand amount, but it takes that when you're dealing with infrastructure bandwidth. Um, you know, if if you if there's any construction involved in trying to enhance your bandwidth, um, you're you have to think about um access points. We one of the things that we did was install access points in all of our school parking lots for all our many families who do not have internet access. They could just pull up in a car and allow their children to work or You know, even if they were waiting on a child to get out of that in an athletic practice, the other children can do their work right there in the parking lot. So those were a number of things that were um, immediately needed 
within our district, but even to push that further, being able to fund extra teaching units so that we can address learning loss, thinking about content area specialists so that we could, you know, really take a look and unpeel, or I guess I should say dial down to the core and to address our deficits within our content areas. I mean, there's just a lot of things we immediately um, we're able to identify. Do you think districts found it hard, like as you kind of look back on it, to, to say, oh, we really need to spend that money for X, but it's only allowed to spend it for Y and Z? Or was it pretty broad and you can get creative and, and spend it no, where you needed to put the it money? was not broad. It was very clear as to what you could spend those funds on. But again, when you look at districts that are high in poverty, they are used to having um, large amounts of federal funding to support that that poverty concern. And districts who are low in poverty don't always have those extra federal funds to spend. So it may have been a challenge for them to really understand the parameters that were set and to stay within those guidelines. Gotcha. Okay. So what I'm seeing from the survey, and I don't know if I said this off the top, it's from the uh, AASA. And it says, that um, over 500 district leaders plan to shelve funding for summer learning and enrichment programs, and 53% of those will let contracts with specialized staff like social workers, reading interventionists, and school counselors expire. And then um, others go on to say they might have to cut teacher compensation for extended learning and after-school programs. So basically what, what I'm seeing here is mm-hmm. these district leaders that are kind of like, we can't spend this in time, here are the things we're going to lose um, mm-hmm. But I guess everyone's kind of up for losing some of that because, I, I mean, the money's not going to just keep But you don't want to lose in. it. It's not a good look. Um, you just truly have to be committed to sitting down at the table and brainstorming on effective practices or, you know, evidence-based resources to help your school district. And sometimes what it requires you to do is shift what you were going to spend your initial federal money on, use your ESSER funds because it's it's here, it's quick to spend, and then make amendments to your original federal projects. Uh, now, you're um, a district leader in a school district, but you're also a taxpayer. Do you think there should be an extension to spend the money or do you think like districts are like, no, they're going to have to figure this out? No, if they need some time to to figure out how to appropriately spend that money, I think it's okay to give them that. And if the other districts... We're able to figure it out and they've got it done. That's great, too. The, so, b- the bottom line is we're serving children. So right. let's do what's best for kids. That's kind of how I feel about it. Like, you know, there's this deadline in late 2024, um, but it's like it, if it needs a little extra time to spend it, I mean, the money's kind of already granted. Why are we pulling back? But apparently it looks like there's some question kind of going further into the story that uh, it probably would take an act of Congress to push that deadline back, which we know probably won't happen. But there is some suggestion that maybe the U.S. Department of Education might be able to grant spending extensions up to 18 months beyond that deadline. So, but if that they might can be a do so. Complex. I think they should. Yeah, I, th- I think most people would. would and they that. should probably provide some guidance as well. Right. So essentially, I think that is what the request is. They are asking the uh, U.S. Department of Education, please tell us how we can spend this or how we can uh, extend it. And uh, they are looking for guidance. And, and that is clearly stated in the article. I'll link to the article uh, in our show notes. It's actually out of Education Week, and it's titled District Leaders Plea to Feds. We want more time to spend COVID aid. Uh, Christina, are you ready for today's bright idea? I am pumped about it. Without a doubt, the push for impactful STEM education over the past decade has made a positive difference preparing our youth. 
but have other areas possibly suffered? Civics, for example. Our guest in today's Bright Ideas segment is here to offer us some perspective on the state of civics education here in the United States. Holly Corby is a journalist, speaker, and author of Building Better Citizens, a new civics education for all. Holly, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm delighted to have you. And uh, I guess first I would ask is, if you could give our country a grade, I'm talking about public education, what grade would you give our education when it comes to educating our students about civics? Mm, that's a, such a good way to put it. I mean, I'm going to say C minus. Okay, so not um, great. Not great. No. And it is. And even though some places are doing really well, you know, overall, though, um, I mean, it's the reason I wrote the book, you know, the most important thing that I found that I did not know when I started researching this book was that the entire American public school system was created just to deliver civics education. I I saw that in your book. So you're going to have to tell me about that. Yeah. So there are literally letters that I looked at, you know, that Horace Mann wrote um, trying to convince people to create a public school system where he was like, look, we really don't need intellectuals. (laughs) We just need people who understand our democratic form of government and why they have to participate. Mm -hmm. And so if we look at at it that way, that our schools, that's what they were designed to do. Are we doing what they designed to do? The answer is no. I mean, you know, throughout the Trump years, a few states have really panicked and and beefed up their civic education requirements. You know, Massachusetts is doing a really great job. Illinois is doing a really great job. Florida has been doing a great job for a while. Um, But overall, it's such a patchwork system of, of civics education, and there's a lot of holes in the patchworks. And most states just don't test. They don't have high stakes tests around civics. So in a lot of places, it just doesn't get taught. Okay, so let's let's reflect a little bit. When I went to school, I was in high school in the late 90s, basically in school in the 90s. I felt like I got a good civics education. However, I grew up right outside of Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia, and so it might have been a geographical thing. I mean, yeah. was everyone getting a good civics education at that time and maybe now not so robust? Like, was my perspective off? Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting because I, I really um, – that's interesting to hear that you feel like you got a really good civics education. So I went to – graduated from high school in the early 90s. And I feel like I did not. Okay. But you bring up something really interesting, which is the time frame. And so a lot has changed around civics education that was happening like at the end of, of the 20th century. And, you know, what I lay out in the beginning of the book is how things have changed. And, you know, the number one thing, again, is that schools change their mission. We Our mission was educating citizens, but then in the second half of the 20th century, we kind of morphed into schools were, uh, their mission was to take care of kids for college and career. And, and, and not even just college and career, but, you know, kind of this idea of the global citizen mm-hmm. um, really became popular at the end of the 20th century. And I think like um, the Fordham Institute did this survey of like all these school mission statements across the country. And what they found is many more said they were educating for global citizenship rather than American citizenship. Um, So that was a huge change that happened. And um, another thing is the change in the curriculum. You mentioned um, the push for STEM education, which also happened in the second half of the 20th century, started with the space race. But, you know, we have been super focused on educating kids for um, science and technology. Um, 
But of course, the third thing is we really changed in schools what we taught and how we taught it. And um, high stakes testing in reading and math just, I mean, there's just so much data. It has crowded out all the other subjects. And that happened at the turn of the 21st century. So that might explain why you got set, you feel like you got a great civics education. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, it's so easy to watch a YouTube video or a comedian go and interview people on the street and say, who's our vice president and watch people stumble through it or whatever. But I don't know if that's really a fair snapshot. Because um, I feel like the students right now are very bright students. Like we can't, say that they're not it's just like maybe they're not learning about government and and civics and so forth is that do you agree with that yeah i mean i think that what has happened is you know um i said we changed what we taught but we also really have really changed how we taught it and there was a movement in the early 2000s at the birth of the internet that schools decided that kids no longer needed factual information Mm -hmm. Um, and that they kind of said, you know, now we have the internet and kids can just Google it. And so what we're going to teach instead are kind of these skills to help them be critical thinkers and everything. And there, and so there was a kind of a, we stopped focusing on factual information. Of course, what we know is that kids are definitely Googling stuff, but it's not always the right stuff. Right. (laughs) Um, so a lot of this has to do with, um, a, a, a de-emphasis on teaching the facts of history. And it really shows up in the NAEP test. So the National Assessment of Educational Progress is the nationally normed test that we use across the country um, to tell how kids are doing. It's called the nation's report card. And um, the NAEP history scores are awful. Um, you know, uh, the last time we tested eighth graders, there were about 25% of the nation's kids proficient in United States history. And that number has not moved in a decade. So um, when we think about, yes, Gen Z kids are well-educated and they are the best educated generation in our history. Um, as far as, as, as understanding our government and our current events and our history, we are doing a poor job. Okay. Uh, I, I don't want to get... I'm going to try to have this conversation without getting too political. I know we've got people that listen to us on both sides of the aisle. Um, But I think it's safe to say that um, January 6th uh, was a a test, I think, of what we would look at as the institutions that were put in place in the United States. I think most people would agree with that. It was kind of pushed to the limits a little bit. Um, And I guess... What I'm going to ask you is, did civics education or the lack of civics education factor in to how we got there? Or is that totally have something else? That's another problem. Is it confirmation bias and polarized sources of news and so forth? Yeah, I mean, this is such a really good, complicated question that I'm I'm not sure about the answer, but I'll tell you what I do know. Um, and, and that I keep going back to this survey of American young people that I write about in the book. It's called the World Values Survey. And every 10 years, they ask young people in America, like ages 18 to 25, um, questions about living in America. And in the last one they administered um, was they found that like a pretty substantial slice of young Americans value some things that we consider to be pretty un-American. And uh, around 30% said that living in a democracy was not a priority for them. Um, About the same amount of young people said that they really didn't care about free and fair elections and they don't consider it a priority. 
and a smaller number, but still a not insignificant number of young people, 16% said that they would like or be fine with a government that had military rule. When I hear that, I think, well, maybe they just didn't get the education, right? Like, and I think that's maybe where you're headed with it. But it's kind of like, I feel like if you if you really understand how our government's formed and the processes in place, the checks and balances and so forth, you, you can't help but be proud of that. Like it is, there's a lot to be proud of there. And, and um, I yeah. almost wonder if you have that attitude towards it, if it's more like you just don't really understand how it was built. But that's just me thinking that way. Well, and so, I mean, to me, this asks the, a very basic question, and that is, could understanding more about what other countries who live under military rule are like, what True. their life is like, mm -hmm. would that help you understand what you're saying? You know, so basically, can knowledge combat ignorance? And especially in the face of social media posts that are designed to light up the emotional centers of your brain or polarized news channels that are trying to get ad dollars, you know, can knowledge help you reason through that stuff, even in the face of polarized news and, and social media posts? And I have to believe that the answer is yes. Yeah. I mean, when I hear people toss around terms like banana republic, or um, they use the word yeah. Nazi, uh, Nazis very uh, loosely, I, th those type of things think like, well, do, do you really understand what it was like in a banana republic or living under Nazi Germany? Or is it just something that, you know, because you've heard the word and you, I don't know, I just worry about perspective there when those terms are tossed around. That is absolutely right. And I think that the real problem of civics education, like if we really, Nick, if we want to get down to it, I think that the problem that we have to deal with is that there is definitely a, a very American backlash against education itself that is happening right now and against the idea of knowledge and expertise and the idea of truth. And so I do think that schools can play a role in saying, hey, guys, there is such a thing as as factual truth. There is such a thing as knowledge and expertise. The experts don't always get it right, but that there are some things that we can rely on. Some knowledge is better than other knowledge. And I think that that's kind of the core of, of what's going on with civics education. Let's please. see if we can talk solutions at all. I mean, in your book, you say that most states require at least some kind of government or civics class to graduate. Few have the kind of robust civics education spread over multiple years and using the proven practices experts recommend for a healthy and civically engaged democracy. So what does robust civics look like? Just more of it? Or is there some tricks? If I'm a teacher listening, like, how can we do better? Yeah, I mean, this is such a great question because I think that, you know, where we're where we're failing is this multi-year, multi-pronged effort to cover to cover history, government politics, media literacy, and spread it out over the years so that kids get enough. But I will say that since I wrote this book, I published it in 2019, that there are two particular things that I think schools could do right now that would help a lot. And um, the number one solution is media literacy. Um, I write a chapter in the book about Sam Weinberg, who is a history professor at Stanford. And he's been advocating for years for this kind of like, almost like a driver's license test, but for using the internet that kids need to take in school. So hmm. kind of like a basic rules of the road. Right. 
where they learn how to tell whether something they are reading or watching is true or false or whether it's motivated by something other than what they might think it is. And that that is, and I mean, he was very candid with me when I interviewed him that he was like, if we do not take care of this, democracy is doomed. And and I think that all of us know it, like everyone listening knows it, that right. this, yeah. the internet is the problem. And so we have got to shore up how kids learn how to tell what is true or false on the internet, or we're going to be in even bigger trouble. So I would say that is my number one. There is so much media literacy that schools try to do that isn't backed by any research. And so why I write about Sam Weinberg is he and his team at Stanford have created a free curriculum. It's called Civic Reasoning. You can go and download, anyone can go download it on the website. And it is um, media literacy lessons that are actually that are backed by research that they know work. And so I, I think if more schools could do that, that would be my number one. And my number two is something that we just need much more of in schools. And that is models of how to participate in democracy. So active things that kids can learn how government works. And so the two best models that I have seen. Um, are the number one is youth in government. And so this is the YMCA program. I think it's in all 50 states. Um, and it's where kids basically reenact a state legislature and mm -hmm. they form political parties and they form committees and they try to get bills passed and they learn how lawmaking works and what rises to the top and what compromises you have to make and how to get people on your side. And my, my own son did it. And he was very active in the Tennessee youth and government. And man, he knows a lot about how the government works. And so I think more schools should invest in, in models like that. And the other one that I write about in the book that I think is very important is action civics. So this is a curriculum that goes at it from the other way, which is what can citizens do to change their communities for the better? And so action civics curriculums, which are popular in, in, in high schools now, but I think they need to be more ubiquitous, is like, we have a problem in our community. How can we get our government to pay attention to it? And it teaches kids how to build a coalition how to use the levers of power, how to talk to the legislature, that they're there working for you. Um, so those are the things that I think that would be most beneficial in schools. Right I, now. I think that is a brilliant list. I love how concise and, and you really have like three actionable items. You mentioned that your book um, was published in 2019. Um, a lot has happened uh, since then. I mean, a lot. <laughs> and um, it's like, where do we even start? But I guess what I'd say is, are you more or less optimistic here in 2022 than maybe you even were after the time you finished writing the book. Yeah. I mean, I think that at, right at this moment, I'm a little less optimistic than, than I was um, because what I see is um, that in a, in some ways things are moving backwards um, that we had this great push for civics education, you know, in, in 2018 and 2019, but um, the people who make the decisions, the policymakers are really backing away from teaching the kind of civics that I talk about in the book. And um, we've got a lot of states who are implementing book restrictions and book mm -hmm. bans and laws trying to silence teachers and at least make them nervous about teaching, you know, the facts of history and, and that they're, you know, now their jobs are on the line. And so I am, I am not as optimistic as I once was. Hmm. 
So, I mean, a lot of that's happening more at the state level, I think, than the national level. I want to say I've done stories on this show where we've looked at uh, federal legislators saying, oh, we need to do more for civics education. And this was recently. And I think some Supreme Court judges came out and said the same thing. Um, uh, yes. But but then we're seeing, I think Florida is certainly an example, like you said, where they're basically saying you can't talk about this for certain years and so forth and kind of restrictions. I mean, do you think the state legislators will win, for lack of a better term, or will the educators um, and the people to, you know who work in K-12 through education um, stand a chance to continue to push through and teach what they believe is the right thing? Yeah, I mean, this is something that really remains to be seen, and I'm very interested to see what happens because what what I see happening is state legislators who th- control all the schools, right? The, right. the state controls your school, um, that they are saying one thing, but when you look at surveys of parents, the majority of parents are saying, we want our schools to teach honest history to our kids. Mm-hmm. So what I see coming up is kind of a clash between what parents want for their kids, you know, and what policymakers are saying. So I'm not sure which way it's going to go. Right. Yes. Time will tell for sure. Well, either way, um, Holly, you've got me thinking. Uh, I love the discussion. I love the ideas that you have and the things that uh, schools can do. So I appreciate you bringing all that to the table. The book is titled Building Better Citizens, A New Civics Education for All. Um, You've been a fantastic guest. Are you ready for today's pop quiz? Oh my gosh, I think so. Thanks for having me, Nick. I'm ready. I'm so ready. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Mm, I think I might have to say history. Okay. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Civics. What does every child deserve? Say every child deserves to know how to read fluently enough to operate in 21st century society. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? The biggest challenge for today's educators. There are too many to count. Um, I would say to try to get in uh, enough education to address the whole child and not just the academic side of the child. What's the best gift to give an educator? Oh, the best gift might be time, some time to themselves that they can plan. Which teacher changed your life? Mm, Mr. Grippenstraw, my freshman geometry teacher. I was horrible at math. He um, used humor and sarcasm to really motivate me to try something I was really scared to do. And I'll never forget the things he said to me. And I love that name. Did you say Grippenstraw? Yeah, his name was Grippenstraw. I've never heard that as a last name, but I love it. That's catchy. (laughs) All right. And uh, last question. Which book have you read, love, and want to recommend to our listeners? Oh my gosh, the book that, oh, I do know. It's Reader Come Home by Marianne Wolf. She is a cognitive scientist who studies the history of how our brains learned to read. And this book is about how technology is warping our brain's ability to think deeply, which is what we do when we are engrossed in reading. And it is a call to action to read paper books and to continue to read words with our eyes. Um, And I can't recommend it highly enough. Again, you're listening to uh, Holly Corby, the author of Building Better Citizens. Holly, is there like a place you like to hang out online, Twitter, Instagram, anything like that? Do you want to share a handle with us? Sure. Yes, I am on Twitter. I'm at H Corby. 
Um, and, and I'm always commenting on education. And sometimes I tell secrets about my kids on Twitter. So. That's great. That's great. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us on Class Dismissed. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. It was awesome. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.